Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode six in our Thessalonians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled Instructions for a Healthy Church Life, where we'll discuss 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? So at the end of each one of Paul's epistles, uh, he gives um, a whole bunch of instructions that are often very practical, that often has to have to do with the health of the church uh, together with each other um, and privately, individually. And we're going to see that today also. It's, um, it's a collection of, of ethical principles, of, of mm-hmm. quick-hitting commands. It's very easy to remember. And it just shows me also the marvel of the scope of God's Word. You've mm-hmm. got some of the deep theology of Paul's epistles, especially Romans, but mm-hmm. some others as well. And then the very simple, practical, even moralistic commands that just tell us how to live. And so God is so wise and so good in order to give us a solid doctrinal base uh, that goes infinitely deep, but then some very practical things that tell us how to live. And so we're going to see that today. Very good. Well, so that we know where we're headed, I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Andy, how do these verses describe church leaders and what do these descriptions teach us about faithful Christian ministry? Well, we think essential to a healthy church is is godly church leadership. And so we believe that the pattern uh, that has been established in the New Testament for godly local church leadership is a plurality of elders who are filtered by 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. They're filtered by certain commands that Paul wrote um, and then voted in by the church, established in their position as elders, each one with equal authority to one another, um, leading the church um, in its mission. So that's the the pattern we believe that the Lord has set up in in a congregational setting, uh, a plurality of elders. Now, here he's talking to the church as a whole, concerning their attitude or their demeanor toward these men that are leaders. Mm. And he commands the brothers in Christ here, he commands the the Thessalonian Christians to respect them and to honor them. 
and it describes them as you asked you know how does it describe them they labor among them there's a hard work in being an elder and they are um over them in the lord or or in a position of authority over them in the lord mm. and who are admonishing or warning them so this gives you an aspect of elder ministry now what do verses 12 through 13 command christians to be or to do concerning their elders and mm. how do the words live at peace with each other fit mm -hmm. into this context so the um, translation I have here says that they should respect them. I think what you said was esteem them. Mm. So there's a sense of honor that comes in being an elder. Now we know from other verses how important it is that these elders do not lord it over them, do not feel themselves in any way intrinsically superior to the church members. Um, they don't, they don't uh, domineer. Uh, lord it over means to, to give a sense of, of inferiority to those people, superiority to the elder, and also you know, self-aggrandizement that you're, you're getting wealthy or you're, you're getting worldly advantaged from being um, a leader. These things are, there's so many verses on Christian leadership. But here it's uh, addressing the church. And the, and the idea here is that there should be a, a glad submission to their godly leadership. Hmm. Um, they shouldn't be making these leaders miserable. As Hebrews 13, 17 says, um, that you should obey them so their work will be a joy, not a burden, because that would be of no advantage to you. So the idea is you should esteem them or respect them. Um, you know, verse 13 says, hold them in the highest regard in love. So um, it's, there's a loving esteem that comes. And, and I think it doesn't say this here, but later in the same passage, it talks about thankfulness. There should be a sense of thankfulness for these men. We are so thankful that we have godly men to lead our church. So that's the, the sense of the command that Paul gives to the Christians and how they should see their, their leaders. And then that last phrase, be at peace among yourselves, I guess that may just be the, the fruit of that kind of attitude is that yeah. you're, you're not at war. I mean, the opposite sure. of peace being war, you're not experiencing this, this conflict mm -hmm. uh, between perhaps the church and the leaders or even amongst church members because of a lack of submission or, or mm -hmm. esteem for the elders. Absolutely. I mean, I think there would be, if, if you're not obeying this, if you're not holding them in esteem, and if you're not submitting to them, as Hebrews 13, 17 says, if you're not doing that, with, then you're going to have conflicts. Mm. You're going to have divisions and, and factions and, and strife. And that is very dishonoring to God. And so be at peace with each other or live in peace with each other really does fit in here with the idea of esteem. So these are men who are called out from God or by God to work hard, to do the shepherding ministry and to, to admonish. Um, there's a, a sense of, of a serious warning that comes in the ministry of the word mm. concerning sin usually um, and the effects of sin. And so you should esteem them and respect them. And as a result, there will be within, within the church tremendous peace and unity. Yeah, and that word admonish is gonna come up in the verses we're about to look at now. So as we move from the first two verses of our passage into verses 14 and 15, how is idleness a problem in the Christian life? And what does Paul command to be done with the idol? Yeah, so um, this seems to be a big theme in Thessalonians. Both first and second Thessalonians seems to talk about you know, the, the lazy individual, the person who will not work and therefore shouldn't eat. Um, you know, he said in chapter four, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and listen to work hard with your own hands mm. so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, of course, but also you won't be dependent on anybody. Mm. So you should be supporting yourself. And so the idea here is, seems like there were some Thessalonians that were idle, they were lazy. 
they weren't working hard. They were a burden to other people. And so uh, he's, he's admonishing or urging, um, actually talking to the church here and, and church leaders, um, to, uh, to, to warn them, to, to warn that an idle life leads to poverty. Mm. You know, you think about the sluggard, um, you know, learns a lesson in the book of Proverbs, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty comes upon you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. Mm. You're going to end up poor. Mm. And so that's where the idea of being dependent on other people is like, no, you've got you've got a good brain and a good body. Go out in there and make a good living for yourself and your family. So there's a sense of a serious admonishment here. There is some indication that a faulty eschatology may have been somewhat to blame here, where these individuals are expecting the imminent return of Christ mm. and had effectively pulled out of life and were waiting. And no, this is not the time to wait. You should be busy working hard until Jesus comes back. But there's a sense of warning or admonishing the idol here. So he moves from talking about admonishing the idol to speaking of the timid or faint-hearted and the weak. Mm -hmm. Who are these people and what does Paul say to do for them? Yeah, so timid people, you know, it, uh, Paul addresses this in, in 2 Timothy with, mm -hmm. with uh, Timothy himself. He said, the Lord has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power of love and of self-control. So the idea of timidity is, um, it's almost like a form of cowardice. You are pulling back from what God wants you to do. Frequently fear of man can be part of that. Um, so we tend to be timid toward other people. And so the idea here is, these folks perhaps are not bold in evangelism. Uh, perhaps there is sin in their families or in, in their in their communities that they should be addressing forthrightly and and clearly instead they're keeping quiet in a meek timid sort of way maybe there are fathers that are not really raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the lord they're letting their their growing kids get away with murder and so there's all kinds of timidity here and he's saying look let's see if we can help those people let's put some backbone in some of these people give them some courage and some boldness so that they will stand firm as witnesses raise their families clearly deal with the evil in the society, that they will be salt and light um, and not be timid. Now, how about the weak? Is this the same group of people or is this a slightly different thing that you think Paul has in mind here? Well, again, I think we're dealing with a community of people. So we got a lot of Christians and people are going to be all over the map. And there's all just different kinds of weakness. Um, there's physical weakness. So that would be the elderly, the infirm, people that are sick, they're chronically ill. Um, and so Paul wants um, them to, to help the weak. You know, the, the, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings mm -hmm. of the weak. That's another kind of, of weakness. There's moral weakness or spiritual weakness. That would be people who aren't quite where they need to be doctrinally. You remember when we went week, week after week through the, uh, the meat sacrifice to idols passages in, in Corinthians, and they hadn't come up to full maturity yet, and they were weak in their faith. Mm. And so they were still acting like Jewish legalists, perhaps, or were dealing. So there's doctrinal weakness, mm. or there's physical weakness, the elderly and all that. So we're going to help these people. We want to strengthen them. We don't, we don't shoot our wounded. Mm. You know, we try to help people that are, that are weak by making them strong. We, we don't want them to continue to be weak. Now, there's some weakness, there's nothing we can do. If, if they're quite elderly and they can't, they can't get out of bed, they need to be helped physically wherever they go, then you know, we take care of them. I think often about the, the manna and how um, 
you know, the statement was made that Paul links to finances. You know, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. The idea is, hey, we're all on the same team here. And so you can imagine some quite elderly people in the Exodus who are literally physically being carried by their sons and grandsons, you know, on, on mats. And when the manna came, they couldn't get up off their bed. And so good, good, strong, young grandsons or sons would go out and collect manna for them too. Yeah. And so the idea here is, you know, we're all in this together. And if, you, if, if some physically can't work, um, they're not able to work, then others are going to come along and help them. So there's a lot of weakness and, and the church comes together to help. Finally, verse 14 ends by saying, be patient with them all. Mm -hmm. What role does patience have in dealing with various sinners, various who are struggling in the body of Christ? So again, this let's go back to the weakness we were just talking about. Doctrinal weakness, you want the people to grow up into maturity. You want them to accept good, solid doctrine, but it might take time. You know, you think about, about those who can chew the meat of the word, they've got spiritual teeth and they can handle the deep doctrines of the faith and they chew them and swallow them and get lots of benefit from that, that strong protein. Then there are others that are like infants and they can only handle milk. And so the idea is that as a teacher, as leaders, as those that are more doctrinally mature, you need to be patient with people. You know, you can't yell at them and get upset that they're not, they're not seeing it. They don't get it yet. They've not come up to the full doctrinal level that they need to. So you want, you, you need to be patient. Then those that are physically infirm, it just takes lots of patience. Everybody has to deal with this. This, this is a chronic situation, a bedridden individual. They're going to need help the rest of their lives. And so the idea is it takes a lot of patience. And that is one of the reasons God brings these kinds of troubles to teach us patience. Hmm. Now, as we look at verse 15, why is it vital for Christians to be forgiving and to refuse to be bitter or seek revenge, especially toward other Christians? Yeah, um, you know, that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. That is such a human nature thing, isn't mm -hmm. it? That's why Jesus told, if someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn to him the other also. That's just so mm. counterintuitive. Our flesh wants to strike back. Somebody hits me, I'm gonna hit him back. I didn't start this fight, but I'm going to end it. I'll finish that kind of, it. I'll yeah. finish it. So that's it. Um, and so the idea is, well, no, we're not going to pay back wrong for wrong. We're going to wrong each other. And I think we've seen in marriage and in any friendship, any close relationship, the giving and receiving of forgiveness is essential. It's like oil in the engine. Mm -hmm. It keeps the, the gears from destroying each other with the heat and the sparks and the, and the, and the metal on metal. If there's no lubrication, they're going to destroy it. You know, as Paul says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by one another. He says that in Galatians. So the idea here is we're not going to do that. We're not going to pay back wrong for wrong. We're going to be forgiving. Mm -hmm. Somebody wrongs us, we're going to turn the other cheek and so that that makes for a very loving uh, community we wish we were perfect we wish we would never do wrong to each other but if someone wrongs us how sweet it is to not pay back wrong for wrong but instead uh, to be kind to be good um, to each other absolutely how would you define kindness or doing good toward one another and to whom does Paul command it here wow it's such a basic word isn't it? it's one of the, <laughs> the most basic adjectives there is the, things that the we could just move good. right past it's like oh yeah just good be good to each other wow. you know do good to others i i think we just kind of all know what it is um the opposite i think helps us understand what the positive is if you do harm to somebody um you're you're hindering their lives you're making them sad or angry that's not doing good to them 
Conversely, if you're making their life easier, you're making them happier, uh, feeding them, clothing them, giving them something to drink if they're thirsty, they're intending to do some big job, you come and help them out so it's easier. Um, all of those things are good things. Fundamentally though, you know, and Jesus said to the rich young ruler, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so the idea of the goodness of God, that God is truly good through and through. He's good right through. He's not like a, a thin coating of goodness over maliciousness. He truly means good to us and loves to do good to us. And so we have to imitate God's goodness in that respect. We are to be good to each other or kind to each other. Um, and that that is to ease their time in the world and to benefit them physically and spiritually in whatever way we can. Maybe the word blessing comes in. Mm. If you're good to someone, you're a blessing to them. They consider themselves blessed to know you and interact with you. As we pick up in verse 16 and look at the next number of verses, we get some really quick, mm -hmm. uh, rapid uh, instructions. Do you think it's better to try to understand this section in terms of corporate worship or one's personal walk with Christ? Well, I'll start with one's personal walk with Christ because we're in corporate worship infrequently compared to just our own walk day by day. Mm. Um, but I don't think it's an either or. I think it really is both and, so we can do both. So let's start individually. So each of us individually. And I memorized these three together when I first, I wasn't hadn't memorized the whole, um, the whole epistle yet, but um, I remember I had a flashcard that had First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Be mm. joyful, always pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It was just these, this triplet of really good things to do for mm -hmm. myself personally. So um, I think it starts there, and then we can, we can work it out together corporately. So let's speak individually. Be joyful always. It's the exact same thing Paul says multiple times in the book of Philippians. Philippians is the epistle of joy. So he says, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. So the idea here is because of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, whereby all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been 100% forgiven, and we are now justified, righteous in God's sight, and reconciled and in a perfectly good relationship with God, that should make us joyful. And the fact that Christ rose from the dead and said, because I live, you also will live. And the fact that death will not hold the final victory over us, but we will hold the final victory over death. We will be able to mock death and say, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, grave, is your sting? We can we can do that. We, we have every reason at every moment to be joyful. Be joyful always. Mm. Now, what is joy? Joy is simply happiness. Um, some people make a distinction between joy and happiness as though joy were more ethereal and purer and more spiritual where happiness is kind of more carnal and physical and like everybody can be happy but yeah. only Christians can be joyful. Mm. I find it to be very difficult to define joy without using the word happiness. Um, I think it's actually impossible. So, <laughs> you know, I think fundamentally the issue is what is it that's making you happy? Mm. And if Christ crucified and resurrected is what's making you happy, then that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. That's how we can have the word always. Be joyful in any and every situation or circumstance like the contentment teaching and so the idea is at every moment there's just an abiding joy that comes from knowing our sins forgiven we're going to heaven when we die now there is something important we need to say because paul says in another place sorrowful yet always rejoicing hmm. so i add the word sometimes in there sometimes sometimes we're sorry sorrowful but we're always rejoicing hmm. i think that's helpful for me because there are we can be both at the same time 
like a Christian funeral. Mm, That's definitely an opportunity to be sorrowful and yet joyful. All right. So the idea here is, yeah, it doesn't mean we're giddy happy or immaturely laughing like, you know, some teenagers or something like kids out playing in the playground. No, there's, but there's a deep happiness or joy mm. that comes from knowing that Christ died for us and rose and was rose, risen again. So that's what I'd be joyful always. And I would say joy is also a good barometer in the Christian life. If you're not joyful right now, something's wrong. Hmm. Uh, something, something's wrong. I think we can just say that. And if at any moment you could say, are you right now joyful in Jesus? No, not really. Okay, well, something's wrong. Something's off. Um, it's a loss of perspective. And we're forgetting that Christ crucified and resurrected should be enough. Mm. And then secondly, pray continually or pray without ceasing, another translation. Um, wow, what a challenge that is. What do you think, Wes? I mean, at every moment. Well, every waking moment, <laughs> you're going to pray. <laughs> yeah, that's it's something that you and I have both talked about. Uh, you know, for myself, uh, it being an area where I'm constantly aware of my desire to grow and my inadequacy it feels in my prayer life. And sometimes I feel like this verse comes down like a ton of bricks to say, well, <laughs> you think you're doing a bad job. What about without ceasing? So. Oh, wow. I think, you know, we were reading this book by Ole Halisby on prayer. It's just entitled Prayer, and it's really good. Mm. And he has a chapter entitled Prayer as Work. And one of the things he says is that a lot of times Christians don't pray because they're lazy. Mm. And this is a key diagnostic verse. It's just really simple. Pray continually or pray without ceasing. So I think what that means is and there's different kinds of prayer. There, There is that concentrated time of prayer we have in connection with our quiet time early in the morning, um, perhaps. I don't think that's, it's like have a quiet time continually. All day long. Yeah, I that's don't it. think that's going to work. Well, it seems that's to kind of be at odds with what he said yeah, about, like, monks. you know, you need to provide for your family, those sorts of things. Uh, How yeah, do we yeah. do these, Paul? How yeah. do we do both? So even the monks knew they needed to get up and go out and work the fields or they were going to be starving. And, and if they didn't have fields to work, they were they were going to be out mendicant. They were out begging. Mm. They had to fill the stomach or they were going to die. Um, so you can't only have quiet time level prayers so then there's that second category of praying which is this kind of prayer mm. which is praying continually you pray as you go so what that means is you interact you're talking with people but as soon as you're done with that and you're moving along down the road your mind goes back to neutral pray then pray then pray without ceasing pray some more now here's the thing that i've found about myself in that whole laziness theme mm. i have committed myself for a month or a year or whatever to pray for something or a group of, of people or whatever every day Sometimes I'm pressed for time and I have my regular quiet time, but I haven't prayed through that list yet. And, and, and sometimes I haven't even had my prayer time at all. So I'll stick it into my drive time and I'll seek to check the box, okay? And it's interesting, I feel like the Holy Spirit sometimes at, at times like that says to me, um, I wish that you would do this when you've already had your full prayer time. Hmm. In addition, hmm. That would be pure, a better sacrifice than this. <laughs> this is your check in a box. Yeah. But that is your giving of yourself. Mm. You're taking your extra time, the time that you could spend listening to a book, an audio book or some music. No, I'm going to work and pray and bless some people right now. Mm. So this is an area of growth for me too. I, you know, just that I would bless this person and bless that person and bless the other. Live for others. Yeah. Let me say one other thing. I think our smartphones have made us incredibly selfish. Mm-hmm. At every moment we're thinking, mm-hmm. what's what's in it for me? What would please me right now? Whatever. And I think it kind of kills praying without ceasing. Yeah. You know, like turn the phone off and pray for some people. You know, that kind of thing. I need yeah. to work on that. Well, I think it, I think it makes us uh, afraid of silence, even yeah. though oftentimes we're scrolling our phones in silence. Yeah. But 
like you said, we're, we're consuming. We're trying to get something out of this instead yeah. of saying, Lord, what can I give of myself how can I give? that would be useful to your purposes? Yeah. Not just and what I can And think how get. simple this whole thing is. Mm-hmm. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. God looks at the tiniest inclination of the heart. You can do some serious business with the Lord in an instant. Hmm. Lord, my friend is a missionary. He's got a meeting with a friend at a coffee shop today. I pray that you bless that meeting and lead that person to Christ. Hmm. Bang. Three seconds of prayer and look what might have happened as a result. And then the third is give thanks in all circumstances if this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Continual thankfulness. So Wes, let me ask you a question. How do you feel when you're in the presence of a truly thankful person? What does it make you feel like to be with somebody who is is pretty much like this, continually thankful? I think if they're being thankful toward me, I feel like maybe valued, honored. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they're being thankful toward someone else, I feel humbled that maybe I'm not as mindful of what others or even the Lord are doing for me. It it encourages me to be more thankful. And I just like, yeah, I I agree. And I also just like being with those people. They're happy people. (laughs) They're thankful about the food they're eating. They're thankful about the weather. They're Mm. thankful about their job. They're thankful about their wife or their husband. They're thankful about the church. They, They love the sermon that you preached or they love, you know, they're just happy, thankful people. All right, conversely, have you been around people that just don't seem to even know the word thankfulness? <laughs> they are griper complainers. Mm. Do you want to be with those people? No. Answer no. no. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm sitting here thinking like, how often have I been that person? Yeah, I don't oh, be that person I hope not. <laughs> well, I wrote that book on Christian contentment and, mm. and one of the chapters was on the on the evils of a murmuring heart. And, and murmuring is thanklessness. That's mm. really what it is. You're not giving thanks to God in all circumstances. So we should at every moment thank God say you know and, and even if it's hard even if you're going through an extreme trial mm-hmm. you know the 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 critical illness of a family member mm-hmm. give thanks even in that circumstance yeah. and how could you say well I give thanks Lord that you are sovereign that you can heal that your purposes are wise even if you choose not to heal I will thank you and I will praise you that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, and so I think giving thanks in all circumstances is a tremendous discipline and you get for the most part you get the payback more than anyone else because you just become a happy person so anyway absolutely the end of uh, verse 18 says for this is the will of god in christ jesus Mm -hmm. for you so to wrap Mm -hmm. up what we've seen in 16 through 18 how would consistent obedience uh, to these verses improve a christian's personal life yeah how would it enrich our corporate worship when we gather yeah wow that's those are great questions i think first for this is god's will for you in christ jesus so you just link it right away to the thankfulness but i like what you did is link it to all three um it it is god's will for you right now God is commanding you to be thankful. And then extend it to the others. God is commanding you right now to be joyful and to, and to rejoice and to, and, to, um, and to pray. And so that is a powerful thing. Now, if you link it into corporate worship, I mean, those things, which would be, you know, um, rejoicing in the Lord, praying and giving thanks those are those are functions we do in corporate worship and to say god has commanded that we come together and do this let's obey and do that yeah i love it yeah now what topic is paul addressing in the next verses in 19 Mm -hmm. really through 22 yes how should we understand these today uh and what does paul tell the thessalonians to do in verses 21 and 22 well he's dealing with prophecy and prophecy is the immediate revelation of uh the word of god all right, so a prophecy is a set of words 
that comes from God directly to the people of God through a prophet or prophetess. Uh, both men and women uh, have been and can be prophets. Um, there's a lot of controversy about the gift of prophecy, whether it was fulfilled uh, in the apostolic era and is now obsolete or whether it continues. Mm. Uh, for me, I've tended to answer that by saying we should uh, maintain in our day the same tests uh, for prophecy that happened in, in those days. And that is, did the prophecy come true? Mm. So the, the most special or supernaturally, clearly supernatural aspect of prophecy is the prediction of the future. And so I think it is reasonable to have a prophet or prophetess prove his or her gift by an independently verifiable prediction of the future that is then verified and the person then is marked as a prophet. Nowadays, in many charismatic type churches or sovereign grace churches, others, they have the gift of prophecy functioning and it just is an immediate word from the Lord coming through the prophet or prophetess. Some that advocate this say it doesn't have to be perfect, just like teaching itself isn't perfect, but it is an immediate statement of thus says the Lord, that kind of thing. The problem is if it's just something that's taught elsewhere in the Bible, like the Lord is saying to our congregation that he wants husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. It's like, well, I consider yes. that to be biblical exhortation. It's <laughs> like, yes. not prophecy. So in Paul in Ephesians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've that's seen exactly that. right. So I, I guess this is talking about back then the gift was working. You didn't mm -hmm. have the New Testament. Paul at the end of this epistle will say, I charge you to have this epistle read. This is the, 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 the developing New Testament. Well, it wasn't there yet. So God raised up prophets to speak the word of the Lord, but even then you needed an evaluative process. And so whenever a prophecy was, was given, first of all, you can't quench the spirit. We need to, to not say the spirit would never move anyone to prophesy. That'd be quenching the spirit or putting out the spirit's fire. And don't treat prophecy as a whole or prophecies in particular with contempt. Deal with them very seriously. This is the word of God for you as the scripture was developing. And then it says, test everything. So evaluate it. This is the very thing that is taught in 1 Corinthians 14. The prophets should evaluate what is said and that they can see if it lines up with the developing Christian theology that comes. So uh, if, you, if anyone prophesies, he should do it in, according to the, the, uh, the analogy of faith, uh, the analogia. It, does it line up with the faith? Is mm. it doctrinally accurate or is it heretical? Mm. So test everything, hold on to the good. Like let's, let's cherish the good prophecies and get rid of the bad. Yeah. Um, avoid all kinds of evil. And I think every kind of evil is like, if somebody gives a bad prophecy, they are suspect at that point. They could be a wolf in sheep's clothing, maybe a false teacher. Yeah. As we move into the final section of this passage, verses 23 through 28, mm -hmm. uh, the doxology in verses 23 and 4 has just some amazing theology behind it. Mm. What do these verses imply about God's sovereignty and salvation? Mm -hmm. And how do they remind us that we will finish our Christian race? All right, so the word, uh, you know, the doxology is coming. May God, the God who acts with some marvelous descriptions, may he do why in your life. That's the pattern of a doxology. And so that's it. This is the kind of things that you can say at the end of a worship service. And, you know, it's a, a word of benediction or blessing on the people. So may God himself, and he calls him the God of peace. I love that statement. He's the God who brings peace. He's characterized by peace. But what may he do? May he sanctify you completely. 
um, or uh, one translation, through and through, or, you know, absolutely incomplete. Now, mm. the problem is the word sanctify uh, comes in one of two senses. It's either a positional setting apart to God as, as uh, his personal possession for his personal use. A thing can be sanctified, uh, like a like an article in the animal sacrificial system was holy to the Lord. It was set apart unto God as uh, for His special position, possession. So that's very much what this could be. May He completely set you apart to Himself, mm. body, soul, and spirit being God's. Or the second way the word can be used is of a progressive development in holiness, more and more conformed to Christ. And, and it's very dynamic. And that, I think, is the better sense here. May God finish your salvation, basically. Mm. May he keep you blameless and make you ever more increasingly blameless, body, soul, and spirit, um, until the second coming of Christ. I think that's what he's talking about here. And then he says, the one who calls you is faithful. Uh, he who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, and he will do it. I love that. He will surely do it. What confidence we can have, not in our own ability uh, to see this through to the end, but in God's ability to bring about what he's promised. I love One that. other theological note here, there are uh, different theologies on, uh, on the, the nature, the basic nature of man, of human beings. Um, anthropology, biblical anthropology. This is a key text in biblical anthropology for those that believe that humans are made up of three parts, not two. Um, and it's body, soul, and spirit. Uh, so the three-part people say you've got your physical side, your body, so it's all the physical stuff, muscles and tendons and bones and all that. Then you've got two immaterial parts to you, um, soul and spirit. So the, the soul is the immaterial part of you that thinks and reasons and loves and all that, and non-Christians have a soul. And then there's the spirit, which is kind of created, I guess, newly when you're made a new creation, which relates actively and in a healthy way to God through faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. That's how they argue, or some of them do anyway. Others say, no, you know, honestly, there's not a lot of difference between soul and spirit. They're just different words for the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, that's helpful. Now, Andy, we've talked about these before, but what do the final greetings teach us about Paul and about the churches that he's writing to, and specifically, mm -hmm here in verses 25 through 28. All right, so start with Brothers Pray For Us. Um, Paul obviously was intensely anxious and concerned about the Thessalonian church that he um, planted and uh, cared very much, sent Timothy to find out what was going on with them uh, and was so relieved to hear that they were doing well. Mm. Well, there's a two-way street here. They should care about him. Hmm. He cared about them, they should care about him. What is he doing? Well, he says in Ephesians 6, pray pray that I may declare the word of God fearlessly as I should. You, know, you should be joining with me in my ministry by praying that I would be bold in pre preaching the gospel. Or if he's in prison, pray uh, for me in my chains and in my afflictions that I might be set free or that I might be fruitful even evangelistically here, etc. Join me in my struggle by praying to God for me, he says in another place. So take part in my life, that's what he's saying, pray for us. And he doesn't say pray for me, he says pray for us. So that's the whole, you know, the letters written from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. So pray for our team, our missionary team as we go out. <clears throat> and then he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. The idea here is of the genuine um, brotherly and sisterly affection we have for one another. A holy kiss would be some chaste, um, respectful greeting that people did back then. For us now, we have different ways of greeting each other. Um, but, you know, just make sure that when people see you 
interacting with each other. They know you love it, love each other, mm-hmm. and they want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. So love each other deeply and greet each other. And then he says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read unto all the brothers. And so he t- uses very serious language here. This is developing New Testament scripture, and he mm-hmm. wants them to partake in it. And finally, he ends with the words, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And Paul, in a marvelous way, always begins his epistles with grace to you, and he ends with grace be with you. So I have the sense here of having moved into this beautiful realm of grace in which we're being graced or blessed with God's grace mm-hmm. by reading the epistle. Now, as we go out of the epistle, as it's ending, May the grace we've gained by reading this epistle go with us as we go out in our daily life. Yeah, almost a a charge, you know, as you're obeying these things, may the Lord continue to show his grace to you. Andy, any final thoughts on this passage we've looked at today or really on this first letter to the Thessalonian church? What a great, great epistle. I think, Wes, if we went back over these five chapters again, we'd find many other different things. That's the depth of God's word. Mm -hmm. But I love this last section we just did here, how, how short and pithy and practical it is. It's easy for us to understand and read, and it really gives us a lot of wisdom in how to live our lives. Well, thanks, Andy. This has been episode six in our Thessalonians Bible Study podcast. We would invite you to join us next time for episode seven, where we'll discuss 2 Thessalonians chapter one, verses one through 12. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.